This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And uh, this is Nicole Bradford, the guest from San Francisco, California. Hi, hey, Nicole. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. So we've got all corners of the United States pretty much covered today. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what do you do? Okay. Um, so hi, everybody. My name is Nicole Bradford. And, uh, you know, what I do that might be the most interesting for you is that I founded a nonprofit organization called the Transformative Technology Lab. And what we do is we exist around a radical idea. What was radical at the time when I started. Now I think it's found its moment um, that all of the technology that we, we use for our outer world actually has a use for supporting our inner world. It has a use to help us with mental and emotional health and well-being. It has a use to help us with social and emotional wellness. And it has a use to help us with establishing you know, human purpose and performance. Um, and we think about it really differently than many people, which we'll probably talk about uh, in the rest of this call. Um, but, you know, it's, it's saying that tech shouldn't just be for, you know, the bottom two layers of Maslow's hierarchy, um, the externals, that it actually has a role um, in, you know, the, the, the inner world. And, you know, I'm just going to say it off the, at the start, because that's, that's the moment where everyone compares what I'm talking to, to the technology that exists, um, which most of it and much of it is not great. Um, especially if you're talking about attention economy, social networks. And so this is not that. Um, and so that is the, that is the, uh, you know, that is the lead that I'll start with. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's great. And we'll get, get a little bit more into it as we move along. So just for our listeners, so that they understand who you are and what your background is. So you are a board trustee at the California Institute of Integral Studies. You're an adjunct professor at Stanford. Prior to that, you were at Singularity University. And you're also the CEO and founder of Willow Group. Am I missing something? I mean, I think you were with Blizzard Entertainment as the director of operations and yeah, I was some gaming in, experience in Disney before that. Yeah, I'm also I'm also a, a novelist and a martial artist. Oh my god. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try not <laughs> to offend you. And I can cook oh and I can god. garden. You 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 are so well rounded. You're you're basically your own planet. It's incredible. I'm basically my own planet. Let me ask you this. I mean, this is uh, your your um, experience is it's it's incredibly broad um, and uh, incredibly relevant. But um, you know, right now you're doing something in transformative technology. What led you here? Like, how did you get to the point where this is you know what your current purpose is? And how did you know? Maybe you could talk about your early career in education and how you got to the point where you know this this is where you found your purpose. Okay, great. So. I was in, um, after I went to business school, uh, I went to Warden in, in Philadelphia with you. 
And uh, after that, I, um, I actually went into the video game business. And I did that because I was interested in the next evolution in human storytelling. And because I wanted to be the marketing lead on the holodeck. Like I wanted to launch the holodeck. You know, I grew up in in Texas in the 80s as a little black girl. And, you know, if anything that a little black girl in Texas in the 80s would be interested in would be Star Trek, uh, where you actually had a future where mankind, for the most part, had decided that they were on the same team and, you know, diversity was celebrated. Um, and so, you know, with that in business school, um, like many people, like, tried on banking and I tried on consulting and none of it actually really felt right on my soul. And so one day I went to, do you remember that Barnes and Noble at Rittenhouse Square? I do. Phil? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the one, but then before, like now you go to the campus and there's like, you know, the Penn bookstore is basically a Barnes and Noble, but back yeah. then that was where you went for, you know, a real bookstore. Yeah. So I, I walked into that and I picked up what color is your parachute and I did it like my I did it like my hair was on fire or like I had 150 G's of loans. <laughs> Both of which could have easily been a hit. Right, right. Both the same. Right. And I sort of said, you know, what is the thing that is worth having instead of appropriate approaching it like, you know, how do you pay the bill? It was really because I'm a middle class kid, you know, it's like my parents were going to pay for that for me. Um, it was like, how do you justify having a bill like that? What could be worth it? What could be so, you know, inspiring that it would be worth it? And so, uh, you know, I went and did What Colors Your Parachute. And um, the words that came out of it were really about human storytelling, technology, future cities, human evolution. Um, and I knew I wasn't interested in deep, deep tech like routers and switchers, which I'm really like dating myself because that's what it was back then. Um, and for entertainment, I enjoyed film and music, but I wasn't personally passionate about it. Um, and so, you know, I would take these words and I would go to the bookstore uh, or, I mean, the business school library, and I would enter them in and see what came out. And one day the annual report for electronic arts came out. And they'd had the forward-looking statements about, you know, what they were hoping to create. And this was also the generation of really big games, you know. And it's just like as soon as I you read using, it. I, you were using metadata before metadata was a thing. Keywords <laughs> and whatnot. That, my God, you invented yeah. SEL. Uh, apparently. And, um, and so then I, you know, so I did a bunch of things. But ultimately, I got into the video game industry and I started – in um, at Disney Interactive, and I went from that to Vivendi Games, and then from Vivendi Games, I went to Blizzard in China. So I worked in China for six years, and I operated. I was the head of operations, um, and I operated World of Warcraft China, Starcraft China. I also did go to market. So I'm one of the few people who has run the front end and back end of a massively multiplayer online game. Um, and so I was doing that and, you know, and I loved it. Um, but, you know, I also um, personally was sort of, you know, I was, you know, it, it's a longer separate story, but, you know, the loneliness epidemic, I was experiencing it. You can be incredibly popular and social, you know, and still be a lonely person. And so that was certainly true of me. 
Um, and so, you know, I started meditating also because I thought all the time. And, you know, it's like many like type A high achievers. You know, I spent a great deal of time in my head back then. And um, that led me to casually try a meditation retreat. And, and I did it with all of the seriousness of uh, sandwiching it with a trip to Bhutan and uh, getting Patty certified in Thailand. Like that's how, <laughs> that's how seriously you I took you it. Don't, you, don't, you, you don't go into these things a little bit. You didn't just dip your toe in. You yeah, basically yeah. became a shaman. You know, I'm all in. I'm always all in. But I, but I went there and I went to one in uh, southern Japan, about two hours outside of Kyoto. And I had an incredibly profound experience. But the, the main thing that I felt was um, deeply connected to everyone, you know. And so that was, you know, maybe a more spiritual aspect of it. But Personally, you know, the really pragmatic outcomes was that one of the things that meditation does is it really reduces what's called rumination. And so rumination is the inner chatter that, you know, it's like that bad roommate that lives in your head and tells you what's going to go wrong. <laughs> you know? Everyone's got um, a Debbie Downer. Everyone's got a Debbie yeah, Downer. Everybody's got that. But, you know, actually, if you meditate a bunch, Debbie Downer gets very quiet. And so that happened for me in kind of a dramatic and unexpected way in 10 days. Um, actually, I didn't hear Debbie Downer for about four months. Um, you know, many people think that that um, thinking has a sound. It actually doesn't. So if you hear yourself think, um, you're really just sub vocalizing. Uh, you can actually do everything that you do uh, without hearing the sound of your voice in your head. Um, so anyway, that happened to me. And because of that, you know, when you, when Debbie Downer isn't speaking one, um, uh, you're not afraid. And when humans are not afraid, they're actually, the natural state is happy. And so, you know, in 10 days I was, you know, unafraid, incredibly happy. And I felt deeply connected. So, so the, the opposite of happiness is not sad. The opposite of happiness is fear. I would say yes. We've all learned something already. Yeah, I would say yes. A natural state of the mind is actually happy when it's not pushing or pulling. I mean, that's some like deep, that's, that's some deep Buddhist theology there, but it I mean, is I can only imagine when this comes out, we're blowing our listeners mind. I, 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 I believe you're very fortunate to be able to do that at the time that you did. Some of us actually had to face uh, the far edge of it where we flatlined and experienced a four minutes, 19 second darkness. So, Ooh, okay, you have to tell me more about that. <laughs> well, it's this is not my piece over here, but uh, it's relevant. Share, go. Yeah, I think uh, I, I went through the same cycle as you did, but I flatlined, chased the corporate America culture lost the voice and I was just a part of the equation. And I flatlined, I had two heart attacks, I was dead for four minutes, 19 seconds, came out of it, packed my bag, left California, moved to Hawaii. I learned it the hard way. So I feel, you know, you you you, you are way, way, way ahead of me. So kudos to you for being able to- not, voice Kudos to you for not flatlining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as it entails to the transformative tech, Oh, what are yeah. some of the cool things that you're working on or engaged in? 
Well, so, I mean, so what happened with that uh, experience is that on the other side of it, because I had a really positive association with technology, you know, being on the back end of, wow, you see families and couples and communities, you see 15-year-olds running 5,000-person guilds, you know, you it's like people looking at games from the outside in, especially if they don't play, they don't really understand how social they are. Um, they don't understand that, you know, if a group of teenagers is are sitting together um, and they're all looking at their phones, most of the time they're digital foraging. They're basically doing the exact same thing we did on the Serengeti, except they're doing it through the digital space. We just don't really, you know, we have really horrible interfaces. You know, uh, technology, I would say it isn't so much that, you know, technology is bad. And when people say that, they're really talking about attention economy, social networks, for the most part. It's that it's not actually that good. Like it's not good enough yet. And when it gets really good, um, you know, then, uh, you know, I think it becomes a lot more interesting. But so anyway, I walked out of the retreat and I was like, you know, this was 2015, actually it was 2014. And I, you know, I had the acute realization that, um, even if most people, when they think about a meditation retreat, especially if it's a free one, they think, oh, meditation is free. But the thing is, is that to go on a retreat is an elite experience. Because if you are a person who has the ability to not work for 10 days, you are an elite person. No matter what, because no the question. bulk of the world works and they do it every single day. And so, you know, the thought was like, how do we make these sorts of things? Like I had this like life-changing experience. You know, I had this experience where I became, you know, where I, I saw life in a totally different way in myself. And, you know, and it was because I'm very, I, you know, I had the fortune to have, you know, 10 days off. Um, and, you know, and I had the friends, I had the network that it didn't seem insurmountable because I had known someone who had actually gone to that same retreat. So the world is filled with a requirement that you have, uh, you know, resources and that you have to be in the right networks to find the really good stuff. And, you know, the most basic definition of technology is that it takes what is scarce and makes it abundant. And so my thinking on the other side of that retreat is like, how do we take the good stuff about human growth and development, about how we come to learn how to feel, be and become, and we make it not, you know, the, 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 the stuff of Montessori schools, you know, and elite opportunities. And we make it actually something that is just available in the floor of, you know, what is available to everyone. And that is the role that that technology has. And so what I'm working on, you know, what I do is I work with uh, founders and researchers and innovators and investors too, to really just catalyze the category where people are saying, you know, we can really push into this inner layer. And so I was crazy in 2014 crazy in 2015, crazy in 2016, 2017, I got a little interesting. Um, you know, when people started to pay attention to calm, uh, 2018, I got a little bit more interesting as people started to pay attention to mental health and realized that the wellness gap and the, uh, the services gap and the therapist and psychiatrist and psychologist and child development gap between what is needed and 
you know, and what we have would take, a, you know, a couple of hundred years if you've stocked every school that gives out credentials to the gills to even meet today's need and it's accelerating. So then I got a little interesting, um, you know, to people. And then 2019 was when people started to really take mental health a lot more seriously. Um, and then 2020 is when I became, you know, not that this matters to me, but 2020 is when I became right. <laughs> ah. Telehealth, tele-education, tele-everything. And so you've seen, you know, the surge in funding into mental health startups and, you know, and, and a bunch of other things. And, you know, Calm is now a billion dollar, $2 billion valuation company. And so, you know, the, the thing is, though, is that, you know, one of our, we have a lot of design principles, or I have a lot of design principles for my community, which is, you know, um, you know, nearly 10,000 people all over the world in our events. Pre-COVID had over a thousand people come to them uh, who, who are essentially builders who build this kind of tech. Um, and that none of this is not like the, the goal is not to replace humans. Um, actually, the very best examples of these products are ones that have humans in the loop where, you know, the technology brings someone to a human either live or virtually to help them with an overall program. Because if there's anything about experiences like you or I have had, Nabil, is that, um, you know, preparation and integration, you know, revelation without integration is just something you forget. You know, that's the person who, you know, who has, has a, an, you know, extreme event that puts them in the hospital for smoking. And then a month later, they're smoking again. Right even though they swore they won it, they had a revelation, but no integration. And so technology is actually really great for that. And so I call it pearls and thread, um, you know, where, you know, the humans can be the pearls and the thread, you know, gets us ready for the moment and helps us integrate afterwards. And so there's, I can send you lots of links and examples of real products that people are using today, um, as well as some of the things that I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about, um, that are coming, but that's essentially what I do is I, you know, I um, catalyze the creation of these types of products um, and also, you know, help people to think about the things that don't exist yet. I, I would say the fundamental, and I'll stop here, the fundamental issue that we're experiencing in the world, if you sort of like take everything and distill it, is that all of our tech is on exponential curves. And all of our crises are on exponential curves, but human growth and development is linear and analog, and you have to be privileged to get the really good stuff. Um, and so technology has a role to play in to help, you know, make that more of a curve and less of a line because the danger in the gap uh, for our species is really that, that we have to catch up to you know our our abilities and we have to catch up to our problems in order to solve them from a different place uh it's amazing I, i'm going to say two things one clearly your trajectory which you know when you know, continues uh, on a direct relationship through 2020 is continuing through 2021 as you've peaked because you've made it to the nomad futurist podcast so it's continuing <laughs> totally to, have. there's no question <laughs> no question um i think the second thing that i is is really I mean, I think the idea of making your experience accessible to the masses is 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 brilliant and and thoughtful and meaningful in in a way.
way that it's impossible for us to even articulate. But I think when people right now think about technology, think about the, the you know all of their children on their devices all day, particularly through the pandemic, whether you know they're leveraging those devices as you know a replacement for childcare, you know just you know watching videos on YouTube or or playing you know some of the games that you had a hand in designing, developing, operating. I know my kids are crazy about Minecraft and roadblocks and and all that. At least uh, at least the older one, with the younger one not too far behind. Um, I have an eight year old and a four year old for those that uh, that, that care. Um, and uh, I think in general, the the view of, of parents largely is that the access to technology is detrimental. Um, you know, that that they're spending so much time in front of a device that they're not you know, experiencing the social interaction in the same way or getting fresh air and that there's potentially as a consequence of the e-learning and just the, the, the being in front of a 2D screen for so many hours a day is going to be, you know, some type of, you know, social and emotional lack of development that, you know, previous generations, um, you know, didn't, didn't necessarily experience. Um, and I think at, at at the same time that you know we have found this pandemic has found us with the tools to be able to handle the disruption. Um, it's also you know forced us to leverage um, you know to potentially unhealthy regard um, some of those same tools. So I don't really know what the question is. I'm just going to let you uh, respond to those that die tribe. <laughs> I totally know what the question is. Thank you. Um, tell us. No. What is the question? <laughs> So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to answer in sort of four little vignettes that together will, I think, answer the question. Um, So the first part is, um, you know, if you look back on human history, there actually isn't a golden age of where humans have been really decent to each other. Like we don't actually have a golden age. We've had golden communities and we've had golden blocks and we've had some golden families, but we haven't had a golden and we've age. Had, and we've had Switzerland. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, you know, it depends on how deeply you go into their, you know, wh- what they funded, what they did yeah. at different times. You know, yeah, like everybody's got a naughty past. Yeah, no question. You know, and so we don't actually have a golden age of, you know, and, and I'm an African-American woman. And so I don't have to actually look that far in history to find a period of time of humans being incredibly not decent with one another. So, you know, so I think it's really important to, to say, yes, you know, there are these, these occasions, um, but like, how do we actually, how do we think about, um, you know, shaping the future that we actually really want for our families and for our kids. The second thing I would say is that, you know, I think that a lot of the technology today is actually really bad. It's really bad design. Um, Like flat screens are terrible. Um, But, you know, from a design principle example, I'm gonna give you one specific uh, product. There's a product that I love that's called Moxie and it is a robot that helps with social emotional learning. And they are focused on children with, uh, issues, challenges, spectrum, kids on the spectrum. And, and, you know, as you know, there's multiple spectrums, actually, it's not just one, but it's those kids. Um, and so uh, Moxie is filled with exercises for kids to do. 
um, they got a couple of three, got three things really right with the design. Uh, one is that the, the technology itself is not the, the, you know, it's not the mediation of life. Um, and so what Moxie does is Moxie um, is, you know, packed with gold standard academic grade exercises that are supposed to help teach social emotional learning. Um, and, you know, Moxie, for example, will ask, you know, you who your best friend is. And then when the child tells them, they'll send the child on a mission to ask that best friend questions. So it's all about getting you back out there with people. Um, some people, when they've heard that, they've said, well, I want to teach my child social emotional, you know, versus having something else. And it's like, you know, I know plenty of parents who have struggled with tutoring their kids during, um, you know, during the pandemic, not because of lack of interest, but because of the power dynamics between children and adults. It's kind of like, you know, when you watch when you watch a man try to teach his wife to ski, <laughs> so it's like it never goes well right. or vice versa. You know, it's like there's, there's my mother. My mother was a piano teacher um, and my, yeah. you know, my mother in law is a, is a piano teacher. And, you know, they, the only people they were unsuccessful in teaching piano were their own children. <laughs> right. So parents need allies. Parents need allies. So it's not, you know, sloughing off the responsibility. It's giving you another point. It's giving you an ally. And when they designed the robot, they wanted it to be an ally to parents. Um, but the other thing, speaking to your point, that's really important is that the, the robot is only operational for one hour a day. And so, you know, everybody talks about how the marshmallow test showing children, you know, children who have impulse control and who can wait end up being more successful adults. But if you think about it, you've never actually heard, how do you teach a child to wait? And how do you really teach a child to wait in an on-demand world, you know, where Amazon can deliver anything that day or the next day? You know, and so this is beautiful. It's like, you know, the child has to wait. Um, and so that is great, but it also keeps them from binging. You know, um, and then the third part uh, that they really got right is, um, you know, they, their security system, uh, everything is stored locally. Um, the only thing that goes back to the company or that the company has access to is the math, uh, but nothing about the child specifically. And if, if parents lose the password, then the robot gets wiped and they get to explain to their child why, you know, their, you know, their little robot friend has no idea who they are. Um, and so, you know, so that's the beginning. That's the beginning of like getting the, you getting the design principles in place. So the technology actually really serves us. So you're right. The stuff that, you know, you've probably observed as a, you know, a parent of your kids over the pandemic, you're absolutely right. Um, but we just have to, we have to make it better. Um, the third thing I would say is really, um, I'll give you an example about, you know, that I use in this case too. You know, I, because of what I've seen on the back end of video games, I actually believe that digital friendships can be as valuable as physical friendships. You know, I believe that two people who are being completely real with each other online can have a better friendship than two people being totally fake with each other in person. <laughs> you know, like we've all had that experience. So it's really about 
you know, teaching people, um, you know, how to create trust, share trust, um, teaching people how to have, um, you know, the self-awareness and emotional self-regulation and self-esteem really to be willing to be vulnerable. So you can digitally have a great, you know, relationship. I know people who met in World of Warcraft and then got married afterwards, you know, like that is not uncommon. And so, you know, I think the bias, the digital connections are not, you know, are, are not as good as physical connections. I think that that also doesn't, you know, include a lot of other things about, you know, how people can be with each other in the in the real world when they have unresolved issues inside of themselves. Um, I will say so, this. I, the, I think I think if a robot asked my son who his best friend was, he would say his iPad. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, um, I agree with you on quite a few things. Like, I mean, the golden age never had, never will. As it entails to bad technology, I don't think any technology is bad. It's either the use of it, the deployment of it, or how it's being managed. The, the interface. The interface. The interface, bad. right? So, I mean, for instance, I mean, everything is done with good intentions, but it gets in the wrong people's hand or we have not grown into that technology to modify to where we need it to be. Like, I mean, a good example, you said about flat screen. I went away from a flat screen monitor several years ago and I've got this curved monitor now and I can get more done. The bezel's in the middle and I've got a bigger screen. So we, we've got to grow with it yeah. and we'll adapt to it. I think the biggest challenge that I have is the fact that people do not understand technology. They do not understand how it works, what it can do. And that's what's creating the divide between the parent and children. That's when iPads become the best friends and we are missing that human element. Don't judge me, Nabil. I can feel it. Humanization <laughs> of this is important. So we need to be able to mine and control the information that we share with the next generation. And that's really the premise of this podcast is to create that level of awareness whereby people can at least find out what's right, what's wrong, what are the things that they should be looking at. Yeah. Uh, having said that, I mean, I think, you know, what, what's really striking about what you're doing and being technologists, we don't really talk about it. We, we live in the grind of technology every day. We act as fixing issues. And the world that we are in today, it's really very much so of patch fixing. Mm. What are some of the initiatives that you're engaged in as it entails to the wellness of humankind? and just a general positive outlook of what the next generation should be looking into. Well, let's start with, do you agree with that premise? Do you agree with the premise that the fact that people don't understand technology is what causes that gap and, and potentially, you know, parents being skeptical of, of technology for, for good uses um, when, when their children are using them? Well, um, so bef before that, I just I want to say there there is one type of technology that I do think is inherently bad. Um, I think attention economy economics are like inherently set up um, to bring out our lower natures. So let's define um, that for our audience. What do you mean by that? So attention economy is basically it's um, things where um, you know you are. In, you know, the platform or the product is in opposition to you. 
its goal is to keep you there, no matter what it takes. And so then the algorithms, uh, the algorithms put in front of you the things that are the most sensational to keep you there. Um, Social platforms would be an example, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, whatever the case might be, or even some games. Well, yeah, but so, but it, attention economy ones. And so those are the ones where it's like they're, they're usually free and they are observing your, um, you know, they are um, doing whatever it takes to, um, to inspire anger or basically the, you're talking like the about high, Candy Crush, aren't you? You're talking about Candy Crush. <laughs> the, just basically the high, high, um, often polarized, like Facebook is, is a really great example of an attention economy product. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's many others like it. Um, and so that itself is like, you know, it actually, you know, it really brings out the worst. Now, the other, one of the reasons why attention economy products work so well is because we aren't actually aware of our feelings, you know, like we aren't actually, you know, tracking, you know, we, in our society, we don't actually teach people how to deal with, you know, negative and positive emotions. We don't actually teach at scale how to deal with conflict. We don't teach that conflict can be the source of intimacy, you know, or connection. Um, and so people are so afraid all the time. And so, you know, you know, one of the things that happens, like when you meditate a lot, it's like, you know, um, one of the things you see in some people is that, you know, they become uh, unmoved by, you know, like you can feel, you can feel an angry feeling without getting angry. And so if you, if you have an angry feeling come up and you sort of just observe it, like you observe the weather, then a post that is designed to go in front of you because they've identified that you're this person and that person, and then this would get you riled up. And so you'll, you know, get into an online screed with someone. Um, it'll just go by you. Not to bring a political aspect, but I mean, Donald Trump was actually a perfect example of that. <laughs> he, they did probably really well with Donald Trump. Um, and so, you know, but, you know, so on one hand, you could say you could fight it by, you know, by elevating the emotional capacity of everyone or, you know, it's their, you know, it's their model. So I would just say that's the one that I think, I think, I think the attention economy economics will be the smoking of this generation. You know, it's like, we'll look back on it and be like, oh, how did we let that happen? Thanks, Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> and, now, and now, what is it? Two days ago, he was in front of Congress saying he's making an Instagram for kids, like specifically for kids that are going to be staring <laughs> and looking as though kids aren't the ones using Instagram today, but specifically looking for likes and, you know, uh, getting crushed if they don't have a picture on there that I'm not going to get into it, but you get the point. Mm. I, well, I, you know, and so, you know, so, so that's the only thing, but to your point, it's like, you know, you're right. Many people don't know how to use technology. Um, they, you know, they aren't, they don't think really broadly of it. It's like one of the things I often do when people, when I'm on calls and, and people talk about technology being bad and I sort of ask them specifically what they're talking about, they often end up talking about attention, attention economy, social networks. And so one of the things I say is like, you know, when you say 
technology, and this isn't you guys, because I know you're, you're uh, really, you know, like, you know, exactly what you're talking about, but many people, when they say technology, that's actually what they mean. But it's like, you know, Phil, you and I wear glasses, you know, 4,000 years ago, this was magic, you know? So technology is all around us. Technology is simply humans making tools that do things for them. And so technology is not bad, but it can be used in lots of different ways. And so when we aren't specific or when people aren't specific, not you, but other people, when they aren't specific, that they're talking about attention economy, you know, networks, then everything gets put into that. And that makes it that much harder to solve. Um, you know, and so the things that are good, that are really hopeful that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about, um, you know, in the beginning, I talked about those three buckets. The first one is mental and emotional well-being. And for that, I look for products that are helping with stress, anxiety, garden variety, depression, because real depression belongs in healthcare. Um, you know, uh, happiness and sleep, because if you can't sleep, you can't be well. And that category is, you know, where you see the bulk of the products, where I'm really looking for products, where I'm really excited about things are um, things that are helping with uh, social wellness, uh, social and emotional well-being, um, you know, uh, emotional self-regulation. I'm really interested in products in, in that category. Like I was talking to a founder the other day who actually is building like a it's a, it's a, it's sort of like a creator project product and uh, it blends fashion and it, it's really cool. But what we talked about her doing is naming her filters as emotions. So right now, if you look on your phone, the filters are things like um, um, the filters are things like patina you know, and their descriptions of colors, right. but, you know, if, if you have, and, you know, they're, they're focusing on, you know, uh, on uh, young people. Um, but if you have, let's just say you have a purple, green and you know, different colors and you name them as colors, then you equip people to, Oh, how do I feel while I'm making this creator thing? Oh, I'm feeling sad. So I'm going to put the sad color on. And then that actually shows everyone. And you start to create a, ling a lingua franca, like a language of people. Cause the very first step to becoming emotionally fluent is to know that you have emotions and to be able to identify which ones they are when you're having them. That is like, if you look at any gold standard, um, you know, ESL, uh, or uh, um, I'm, I'm sorry, social emotional learning. That's like the basics, you know, like I remember before I, I learned how to meditate, um, sometimes it would, I was so disconnected from my feelings that it could take me a week to get mad at you. <laughs> you know, like it would take me that long to feel that I was angry about something, you know, and so that's kind of the base. So I'm really excited because people are starting to build in that category. Um, and we just need, we need more things like Moxie, um, uh, you know, and, not just robots, but it's like, there's so many different types of people that there need to be, you know, a plethora of options for people to come in at different places. And I really believe in meeting people where they're at. So I'm also really excited about, um, you know, things that sit on top of games, um, you know, uh, because out of seven, a little over, well, seven and a half ish billion people, more than half of them play games of some kind, you know, and, and by the way, many people have a very limited view of what games are, you know, games are 
a combination of play, narrative, community, and exploration. Like, like that's really what a game is. And some have different dopamine loops on them. But like a girlfriend of mine uh, built a game uh, that's called Jane Austen's World. And, and, and that's really what, or it's not called that, but that's essentially what it is. And so it's, you know, where, you know, a Call of Duty is super fast. It's super slow. People go to dances. They flirt with each other. All of this is digital. Half the people in there are men, which is like, Turns out a lot of dudes like Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice and stuff like that. The weapon is gossip. (laughs) So you can like, you can like all G and like gossip someone. (laughs) Um, And so it's really, it's slow. You know, there's so many different types of games. There's civilization and it's just like, it basically is like, you know, the digital world and the physical world have really come together. So I'm excited about people who are doing that. And I'm also really excited about, um, you know, on the far sci-fi side is um, things that really enhance our, um, you know, our mental and, and emotional capacity. So, you know, I follow a lot of the neurotech stuff and, you know, things that are, are that people are working on to you know, enhance. The other thing I'm excited about is I think, you know, I think actually our homes and cities are great canvases for supporting our well-being. You know, imagine a, a, a you know a, a city built from the ground up to be your partner instead of Big Brother, it's Little Sister. You know, um, and this Nabil really requires. Um, you know, to your point, we have to get the data privacy, ethics, and sovereignty right. We all need agents that run interference for us and designate data as either um, private, public, or for sale. Because people should have the right to sell their data if they want to. Like one of the the issues I think you see um, with many of the data advocates is that you know they sort of treat people like Tamaguchis in that they know what's right for them. And and I'm sort of an advocate that I want people to have options. You know, um, people should have choice. And there's a lot that has to happen in order to ensure, you know, privacy, ethics, and sovereignty. But on the other side of that, if someone chooses to be compensated for their data stream, they should be able to do that. Um, but that's so the thing. I mean, the thing, like a, the thing, the thing that's so thing. The, the thing that's so kind of you know revolutionary is that thinking that you know all of these companies, all these social media companies, and all these technology companies, their biggest asset, the the gold rush, the 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 oil well, the fountain of 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 revenue that they've come to, it doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to us, um, and you know, selling that data is what makes them. Uh, all, all, all their money, and you know we're just you know kind of giving it away. You know we're not we're not involved in that process at all. Well, uh, it's it's crowdsourced, right? So I think we came up with this uh, hashtag field as data rush. Right, uh, mm. Nicole. I think you bring a lot of great points. So part of the challenge we have in our industry, or generally in technology, is the fact that it's the blind leading the blind where decisions mm. are being made, and it's how can. Uh, some of these leaders put more in their pocket. The lack of awareness, knowledge in the general populace is a part of the issue. People don't know, they don't understand. Uh, they don't read the short print. They agree to all the terms and conditions that uh, are being put 
forth by uh, these uh, their, their legal counsels, uh, which ends up in us giving away all of our rights, to them getting all the data. I totally agree with you. That should be totally a choice of people, but it needs to be addressed foundationally at the lobbyist level, at the government level. Which means you need you need you need government level people that actually understand technology. I mean, it's not it's 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 like you know it's like the 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 dinosaur is leading the uh, leading the charge. They they you know they they have no idea. Uh, they're so far behind in terms of uh, understanding this. It it makes the rest of us look like I'm going to try to think of someone really smart. I can only think of Nicole right now. So it makes us, it makes all of us look. Like <laughs> well, I, I would say there's there's four things that are needed. Um, you know, one, there is there absolutely is some sort of regulatory response. Um, but, you know, that can also go, you know, in an ineffective way. You just sort of look at GDPR, um, you know, so but absolutely we need some sort of regulatory layer, um, you know, that that's a part of it. Um, the other part is, you know, we, we actually need some advances. Um, you know, we need data unions. Uh, we need, like I said, the ability to designate something as public, private, or for sale. Um, and, you know, it turns out like, you know, when you look at, um, you know, without getting too too granular, um, you know, even like, so if you look at the hospitals of the world, if they wanted to, if they wanted to, make, you know, if your eye doctor and your foot doctor wanted to have a, a single record for you, um, you know, the data interoperability is like, we're nowhere near data interoperability. Um, but in order for to do data interoperability, you actually have to have trust in standards. And in order to, to have trust in standards, you have to have the data interoperability. So there's like, there's a bunch of pieces in there that are very granular. So we need some technical advances. Um, some people are working on things that, you know, where it's sort of like you can use AI to match the data up because so many of the data sets are not interoperable. Um, and there is another side to that. I think you're going to need some regulation on that. Um, there, well, I think electronic gonna... health record. I mean, we have been talking about it for the last decade, right? Yeah. The matter is that the databases are the same. The data points are the same but nobody in the government space or the regulate, regulatory space can define what those boundaries are. So technology well, exists, it's not being implemented because of the lobbyists, because of-, of Well, of there, but there's also a lot of things like, there's also a lot of things like if, for example, you take EEG data, um, you know, people, and that's like a brain, uh, for your audience, that's like uh, brain signal data and bio data. Uh, stop, stop pretending like it's not for us. It's for us. I mean, the audience also. <laughs> but you know, uh, the just the, like minute differences in how people take that data on the same types of machines can make the data not interoperable. Um, so even when they're trying, they can get it wrong. So so you're right. We've had the medical records for a long time, but it's also it's like, you know, on the implementation side, one of the dirty secrets is that it's like even if a lot of these groups want it to interoperate, they can't like they can't even even when they're owned by the same hospital groups and some things like that. Um, so so I guess the bottom line is like one, we need regulation. Two, we need advances. We need some there's some tools that we need. Uh, technologically. Um, third, uh, you know, we need culture. 
culture is a part of it. In, and what I mean by that is I think people are getting really savvy, a lot more savvy um, than they used to be. Um, one of my colleagues at Stanford um, did a, um, uh, he did a, a study on the, the 2016 election. And it turns out that like 80 to 90% of the fake news was forwarded by people over 70. And so really it was like, it was grandma, like really like grandma and grandpa, like really did a lot of the fake news spreading and teenagers check headlines five times on average, five times before they believe them. Now, one could say, oh, it's terrible that you can't trust the headlines. But on the other side, if you step back and look at it from another angle, those are incredibly media savvy young people. They're really media savvy. And the moment you give them the ability to monetize their data stream, like they're like they're going to get mercenary about it, I think. Uh, the moment the tools are, are sort of in their hands, um, you know, and so they're actually like, you know, in many ways savvier than we think about it. So it's like, you know, and, and you have to look at, you know, I spent a lot of my time, uh, you know, looking at lots of seemingly unrelated, you know, points. You know, another example would be is like, think about like, uh, you can find entire streams or entire, um, you know, um, uh, topics of, you know, where, where young people are looking at whether or not um, something that they're looking at is real or fake. It's one of the reasons why you've seen this move towards authenticity, which is now being replaced by intimacy. And so they have these like really, they're starting to get these really well-developed filters on like what's real and what isn't, but they don't have any tools. They're, they're like basically having to figure it out on, on themselves. They don't have anything that's an advocate for them that they control, that they have power over, um, and that is working on their behalf, which is the opposite of you know, the, the attention economy networks. Um, so we, so I really believe it's like what's going on today, you know, the way that, that, you know, RJR behaved, um, you know, the way that the, the cigarette companies behaved, um, you know, we were all kids when that was happening, but it's the exact same thing. You know, I, I hope we can have this conversation again um, because it's, it's, it's just, it's brilliant. And I don't know that we've seen, we haven't scratched the surface of, um, you know, how technology has impacted, you know, the younger generation who is now kind of beholden to it. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.